everyone. This is the Here for the Long Ball audio edition, and I'm your host, Adele Jackson. Together, we will be exploring women's soccer through an intersectional lens with my friends and the questions that have been on our hearts. Y'all, these two women that I'm about to present are incredible. On July 4th, 2019, I was hanging out with them at a party, and right then and there, I just knew we had to record a conversation. First is Kelly Nascimento DeLuca, who's an activist, documentary producer, and, side note, the daughter of Brazilian soccer legend Pele. And second, Susie Petrocelli, the author of Raised a Warrior, a women's soccer odyssey and memoir, telling her story about how she found her own identity in a male-dominated sport. It's a great book, by the way, so if you don't have a copy, go on Amazon right now or wherever books are sold or wherever this is sold and get it on your bookshelf. You will not regret it. So both Kelly and Susie have been working together, traveling the world to film a documentary on women's soccer cultures in different countries. From my understanding, it explores the progress and inequities within the women's game from a global perspective. And I can't wait until it comes out, and I'll let you know at the end of this podcast how you can stay updated on when it does debut. So we talk about that, their travels, what they've witnessed along the way of producing this film, and so much more. Um, We had a lot of fun with it. But before you get listening, I just want to let you know that Kelly is the person who speaks first, so you don't get confused. But anyway, here's us chilling on a couch, chatting it up. Enjoy. All right. Happy 4th of July, everybody. Thank you for, yeah, thank you for coming to um, our house. Um, I'm here with my friends uh, Kelly and Susie. We're currently uh, doing a documentary about women's soccer around the world. Remind me of the name again. Warriors of a Beautiful Game. Awesome. And can you tell me like, what inspired you to start this documentary and tell me what it's about? So it's about, uh, it's a story of a young girl um, from Brazil uh, who just actually graduated, but it's, it's a story of her sort of rise through or making her way through the world of women's soccer. And within her story, which is a really amazing, phenomenal story, we tell a little bit about the history of women's soccer and about the current state of women's soccer. And you know, show some sort of the people that are working really hard to get it to where it's supposed to be. That's awesome. Um, and I'm wondering, because y'all have been around the game for a really long time. I'm sure that in speaking with, I mean, you spoke with a lot of national team players. I know some American, obviously a lot from Brazil. Has anything like surprised you about the state of the women's game right now? Yeah, I mean, I I would say everything's surprised uh, me as we've been, right? (laughs) Everything. Um, Everywhere we've we've gone in the last year to film for the movie um, has been completely different than what my expectations were, which I think is interesting because I had these preconceived notions of, for instance, what professional women's soccer was going to look like in Zanzibar, and what we found there was not at all what we thought. So I think everything's been surprising. Um, it's been really educational. I think people will be, um, I think, and what you were saying, like we have been in, around soccer our whole lives. So for us to not have really a clear idea of what's going on outside the United States in women's soccer, what that tells me is that since we're people that have been in the game and around the game for so long and played the game for so long, for us to not know 
what is going on outside the United States in women's soccer and not have a clear idea, it makes it really important that we're, you know, getting out there and showing what's actually going on. And we're actually hoping after the movie to continue telling those stories and figuring out a way to continue collecting those stories and hearing what, what uh, is going on in the places that we haven't been yet. Talk to me a little bit more in detail about, like, what shocked you the most or any story or any sort of athlete who's just, like, amazed you. So for me personally, the things that shocked me, and I don't know, I mean, shocked maybe, the things that surprised me that were, were a couple of things. In general, what surprised me was the fact that many people who are in the game, and women who are in the game and huge advocate for the game, really didn't know much about what was going on in other countries. And I don't think that that's for lack of, you know, of, uh, lack of empathy or anything. I think it's just because you're so consumed with fighting the fight right in front of you. You know, a friend of ours, Mike, and always, you know, is always saying how activism is lonely. And it really is because, you know, in its sort of essence, it's about separating yourself from the group and saying things that people don't want to say. So I think that in doing that, you know, it's sort of all consuming. So it's really hard to see you know, the, the forest for the trees. So that, I was surprised about that. There are people who I would, you know, be speaking to in between recording and be like, well, you know what happened in Brazil, right? With them, they're like, no. And I'm like, you? You don't know what happened, you know? And so I don't know why I assumed that everybody would happen because people are living huge lives with, you know, families aside from, you know, but I, I was a little surprised. I was surprised, like Susie said, about what I found in places that, you know, I expected to find a lot less support and I found more. I expected sometimes to find a lot more support and I found less. I was surprised at, um, I had this naive notion that, and it did, and it did actually, uh, it, it did ring true in some places, especially places that I went to where, that we, we interviewed people where nobody had ever asked them before, like, tell us your story, right? They'd never been heard. But I was also a little surprised by, you know, after I did my sort of, I didn't know much about women's soccer, you know, in detail before I knew about soccer, but mostly men's soccer. So after all my researching and, you know, and Ruby, I mean, sorry, Susie knew a lot more. That's my daughter's name. <laughs> and Susie knew a lot more than I did already. But after all my research, I thought, oh my gosh, I mean, we're going to get places and women are going to rant. And I was surprised at how much perspective and gratitude a lot of these women have, and it's not like misplaced sort of, you know, uh, Stockholm syndrome kind of like gratitude, but it's real sort of a real perspective on how far the game has progressed given how late we got to start as women's football. I was expecting a lot more ranting, a lot more anger, um, and I got a lot more sort of just passion and a willingness to do whatever it takes and, and a gratitude for as far as everybody's gotten. That's awesome. I mean, I think the work that you're doing is reminding me a lot of, you probably have read the book Under the Lights by Gwendolyn yes. Oxahan. And I think that was the first time that really opened me up to, yeah, the different experiences that all these female, you know, athletes face in different professional leagues, like, you know, all the crazy stuff that happens with Russia and like where that money's coming from. Do they get paid? They might or, or not. And, you know, putting you know, their lives at risk sometimes to, you know, play the game that they love. But then at the same time, like you were saying, that there are a lot of women who are so grateful for what they have and, yeah, aren't necessarily renting. It's all about perspective and where everything is at. Um, I'm curious to know, because obviously we've all been watching the World Cup. We've been to some of the games. And I've had a couple of my friends talk about, like, how all of the teams that made the semifinals are all, like, Western European teams and that's just kind of the state of where we're at right now in terms of um 
the development of the game. And I'm wondering if you've had any thoughts about like class and race in regards to how this tournament has shaped out so far. One of the reasons why I wanted to make this film and one of the reasons why I was so excited about this subject, aside from the fact that I love football and, you know, I love, you know, us, right? So, but was that I'd always been involved in equality and in some form or another. And I always tell people, you know, my parents, when we moved here from Brazil for my dad to play, I went into United Nations school, which kind of ingrains in you that sort of, you know, fix the world kind of thing, right? So I always worked in that area. And one of the things that was really sort of, you know, which people know, but, you know, for me was sort of like a, a epiphany, like light bulb kind of thing when I was researching women's football is how the state of equality in women's football mirrors the state of equality in the country they represent. How, you know, people asked me recently even, so, so in your travels, what was the most difficult areas that, you know, for women that you, I'm like, you know what, the ones that you think they're going to be because the team and the, the way they're treated in the team is exactly how they're treated in their country. It's exactly the level of equality they are afforded in their country is what they're afforded in their team. So I think that, yeah, absolutely. So if you look at the world and you look at how women are treated and perceived in different cultures and different countries, you can tell pretty much fairly fast which teams are going to progress because those teams are representing those countries and their values. Susie, do you want to add to that? Yeah, so I guess, you know, obviously we're lucky here in the United States in particular, right, because the way things happen with our laws in the early 70s and the women's movement in the 60s, we had this amazing law called Title IX, right, in, in 1972, um, which revolutionized the youth sports culture in the United States. And then I think the European countries have seen what we've been doing, and they're trying very hard to organize around that, and they're pulling together leaders from all different areas inside football and they're building their own networks and they're building their own uh, basis to start building opportunities for girls in sports um, so I think it's a flow and I agree I think it, it you know it, yes it's starting in America and it's starting in Europe like clearly that's our responsibility to, to help it grow um, in the rest of the world. I'm going to add that I also think that because of the state of football in general in Europe, you know, and, and Premier League and, you know, and all that football is in Europe, they will far surpass us in terms of organizing the game. They may not surpass us in terms of the equality that the girls get in order to start playing, but they will very soon because I think they will see the monetary and, you know, the possibilities before the United States does. I also think in terms of soccer, it's interesting culturally that the United States, for example, even Title IX is not going to get you great American football women's teams because American football is traditionally a male game here. So you'd have to overcome that cultural bias where for soccer it was like the immigrant game and nobody even thought it was a thing so you know it was free reign for the women so I think in the other countries there's that huge cultural bias to overcome which is pretty big that's really interesting I didn't even really think about that I mean yeah they have all the infrastructure with the men's teams and the culture and the just the enthusiasm around it that we are just learning about like, I, I don't know, I just laugh sometimes when we go to these games and I'm just like li listening to the USA cheers that we have. <laughs> ah, the that we can win. It's just like so just like not like doesn't feel cool. Like I feel like the uncool dad at the party. I was on a bus to the England, England USA game, and it was funny because my bus just happened to be, you know, England heavy, and there was like a little, you know, face off of cheer. They have like 50 songs. <laughs> like all we could do was USA. <laughs> they have like 50 bar songs that are for soccer, and I'm like, and at one point they went into like when the Saints go marching, and I'm like, all right, come on, that's ours, dude. This is not yours. But it was it was crazy, and they come from the men's tradition, right? But they have so much of a culture, you know. 
definitely lacking that culture. Um, but not only in, in women's, not only in women's soccer in the United States, but in men's soccer in the United States, right? There's only a few clubs in the United States that have that culture they're, yeah. they're building, and they're mimicking the European clubs, like you were saying, yeah. right? Um, but yeah, no, we definitely like the game, the, the audience, the fan experience at the England USA game was, was, um, you know, leaves a little bit to be desired. Um, you know, I mean, you know, we, we should even, you know, come up with some songs for all the girls. We didn't even sing it. Happy birthday to Alex Morgan. First I of all, which is, I, yeah, I yeah. Attempts. I heard a few attempts and I was like, come on. I know. I thought we would end up like, yeah. We just, you know, we don't yeah. have, we don't have that yet. We need that. We need to build that creativity. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I feel really uncool. Like, yeah, <laughs> like uncool. not a la mode. Like, I just. Macarena. We did do the Macarena, but they do that of all the games, don't I they? Know, but I mean, come on. Can we do something more than the Macarena? It's not even ours. I'm not going to lie. I got up and I did it very enthusiastically well, by myself. Absolutely. I would have flossed if somebody had, you know, if they <laughs> I Yeah. That was my favorite song when I was like five. Like my my dad had this like CD of Macarena songs, like all remixes, and I would just like put it in the stereo and I'd play it nonstop. I'd turn the volume up and I'd just like do it. And then my my parents, I don't know how my parents felt about it. They must have been so annoyed. It's just Macarena for like an hour and fifteen minutes. I think that's how long the album was. Yeah, it was it was interesting. You're were mentioning something about Title Nine and how number one that was like what you know, got us into soccer as women, but then ultimately won't like sustain us as like the strongest nation in soccer, right? But Susie, I know you are writing a lot about that right now with your book. And can you talk about what you're working on right now? Sure. Yeah, thanks. So um, I've been working on a book for about six years and it started out as a an ode or an homage or a love story to the Harvard women's soccer team where I played because the team experience uh, for me was the most important social experience that I had in college. And it helped me through some very hard times um, adjusting to college, adjusting to Boston from California, adjusting to so many things, you know, growing up. And um, so that's how the book started out. And then as I started researching for the book, I came across more about the history of Title IX um, and more about the history of the women's sports movement in general. And to be honest with you, my mind was just totally blown that I had never known and been taught any of that history before. So the book evolved into really a story about almost like what I had been taking for granted as an American female athlete and realizing that women outside the United States don't have any of those opportunities in most in a lot of cases and um, and you know the legal support behind them to equalize spending um, in athletic departments and and beyond you know even things like you know access to tampons and access to feminine hygiene products and access you know uh, laws that are keeping them in school and um, so so many things so the so the book is really uh, right now it's called raised a warrior um, it's going to be published by floodlip uh, publishing uh, early next year and um, the title means to me that I was raised a warrior by my father with the attitude in on the sports field that you really sacrifice your body to win at all costs and um, the second meaning for me the, of Raise the Warrior is that I'm trying to raise my children and actually still raising myself in a way to be a warrior for a, a cause that you're passionate about and trying to you know, do some positive change in the world. 
<laughs> Applause. That's awesome. And I'm excited to pick up a copy. Um, I'm curious because there's a lot of people who defend Title IX and, and obviously we, we know why because it's benefited women so much. Um, but there's also been arguments about like how Title IX has like basically taken women's coaches out of coaching women's sports in the sense that now there's a market that men now can take advantage of and get all the jobs. So I'm wondering like what do you think about that? And two is like, do we need to revise it? Amendments? Like, I don't, I don't know what the word or the term would be, but like, what's your perspective on that? Yeah, so that is an unfortunate side effect of what happened. So before Title IX, women were coaching women. And that's how women's sports developed in the United States, right? With, at the uh, Seven Sisters schools and the beginning of women's um, athletic departments. And then Title IX happened and things started changing and those jobs became more desirable. So men started uh, moving into those roles. And now, you know, I think in New York, at least there's less than 10% of soccer coaches are female coaches. So there is a huge movement now to change that culture back and allow women. Um, it's almost like we, those jobs then, as they became more male roles, it was almost like we lost, women lost the respect that we were able to even be competent enough to do those jobs. So that's really the unfortunate piece that we're having to fight back even to earn our sort of like supposed competency to be a head coach of a team. So yeah, we're, we're, you know, we're pushing really hard to change that, those, um, those numbers back around. And I know, you know, U.S. soccer is pushing really hard now, finally, to try to change the rules um, to get more women in coaching soccer, at least. Awesome. Um, I just wanted to, can I add something to that? I think it's interesting how in every aspect of progress in society, the onus is on women to do things in a way where, you know, we are allowed the same opportunities as men and then fix them because we, you know, we created a great opportunity for all and then it becomes a man's job because now there's money in it. And so the question is always to, well, so, so do you think that was worth it? And it's like, yeah, that was worth it. It's just a, a reflection of society. Like now these jobs have money. And so because society doesn't think women are, you know, equipped to do important jobs, then the important jobs are going to the men. So Title IX, I don't think is the problem. The problem is the same problem in everything, you know, and that's, you know, it's not, I mean, of course, it's, we're going to have to do it, but it's not our job to explain to people that we're still qualified for the same jobs we were before that now people actually get paid for. I think the other thing that people including you know, myself and like other female athletes that are coming up, um, we ha really have to change our perspective on leadership and coaching and how and what that looks like because, you know, we have so many biases against women who coach and if they're acting a certain way, they're bitchy or all that stuff. And you see all these female coaches get fired for like maybe legitimate reasons, maybe not, but like they get cut more often than not. I mean, earlier, Kelly, we were talking about, you know, in Brazil, how Emma Lima got cut after what ten Same months? Month. Yeah, which is which is crazy. And obviously, Brazil has their own perception of women and their value. And so, you know, and I, I think about my career, and I did I have any female coaches growing? I had none except for one assistant coach in college, and I didn't even think about that until people were like, "Hey, they, look at the statistics." I don't know. We just have to change our perception of that. And number two, in terms of coaches as well, I mean, we've just seen all these cases of forms of abuse everywhere that what qualifies as a good coach is not clear to many of us. Yeah. 
and there, there's no regulation and there's no like like how how are we supposed to talk to athletes how are we supposed to talk and so we feel, feel like it's this like male dominating figure that is like almost threatening to a point to make you perform but what if it's it's not that you know so anyway let's segue a little bit into um we talked a lot about the states uh let's talk about brazil because that's where you're from kelly you know brazil surprisingly played a really good tournament but it's also sad because obviously you know marta i don't know what's going to happen to her after this if she's going to keep playing formiga you know cristiani so i'm wondering as a brazilian how you feel about this tournament and like how they exited and what will happen after um yeah i mean i think it makes me really really sad and i always say this i feel like if the Brazilian women's team were afforded like one one hundredth of the opportunity that the men are, they would be unstoppable just because of the amount of talent that just is there, you know, like it just for the picking. And, um, you know, knowing how things work in Brazil, there's no soccer for girls in school. There's no soccer. For, there are no soccer clubs for girls everywhere. The federation doesn't cast a net, you know, and I, and I would I, I usually say wide net, but they don't cast a net at all. I mean, honestly, if you think talk about it and even talk about it to actual players it's pretty much like you know if you're in front of them and you're good right they're not going to go look for different you know very far even Laiz who's in our film she was she's been at University of Florida and she you know she was I mean Becky Burley thinks she's like the shit can I say that but I said to and she was in the she was a captain of the U20 national team and when I talked to her about so so what do you think and she goes that you know they never take anyone from college in the U.S. And it's these things that's like, there's no rhyme or reason. One of the reasons Emily Lima, one of the things she was doing was that she was changing the way that the net is cast. She was communicating down the line. She was working a lot with a men's coach, with Titi, and she was going down the line of all of like the youth teams and, and trying to, uh, you know, uh, send down sort of, this is how we're training them. So if you want to start aligning them, so that you have sort of like a system, you know, Alini Pellegrino, who is, was a Brazilian player, who now is the head of the women's division in the Federation in Sao Paulo, is doing that. She's really revolutionized in Sao Paulo how girls are looked for and found and, and sort of trained. And you see a lot of the teams in Sao Paulo getting really good, like Curinchas and Sao Paulo, a lot of them, like even Cristiani went back from China to Sao Paulo to help the team. So it is sad. It's sad, but like honestly, if you look at the age average of the team you can tell that they're not looking for you know and Marta's plea at the end of the game you know that was a plea and she said this when we interviewed her she's very disillusioned with the new crop of players and their determination and their passion and I said this before I you know I can't disagree with her because I don't know and of course she must be right but I also think that if you step back after talking to all these amazing coaches like Rita Guarino and Becky Burley you know and Tom Sermani and they all talk about how they want to bring on human beings before good players. It's about the, you know the person's drive, the person's you know ability to lift the team, the person's attitude, the person's. And when you're casting a net that's super super short, you don't have that kind of choice. You know you're looking for pure talent, and then maybe that's how you get. I don't know, but I'm guessing maybe that could be how you get a team where you feel like someone like Marta could feel that they're not really all super passionate and giving it all 100 percent. You know, but there are girls all over Brazil who would die to give 100% for that team who they'll never see, you know? So, I, it, yeah, it makes me very sad. I think eventually it's going to change. I think that the fact that they're doing it in Sao Paulo and that Alini's doing it is creating a model that maybe, you know, the powers that be will think, okay, well, maybe we could do that too. Um, I'm hoping. Yeah. Cool. Um, 
so probably last topic we'll talk about because I think this is really interesting in terms of um, what sort of stories come up um, in terms of how the players look or act when they're on the field. So, for example, one thing that people were really talking about was how Marta wore the lipstick, the, lipstick. Yeah. the red blood lipstick <laughs> and like why and like what's going on. And like I talked to some people who are like, what? Like we didn't wear makeup like growing up playing soccer. Like that's like weird. And other people are like, yeah, do you? Whatever. Um, so there's that aspect. But then we're also talking about, you know, all the celebrations and how some people think it's arrogant or, you know, like, I don't know, just too much. Like, what do you think that's about? I guess, you know, I, first of all, I don't judge, I don't judge their celebrations and I don't judge them for wearing makeup. I think, I, like you said, they just need to do them. They, it's self-expression, whatever they're comfortable wearing or whatever makes them feel more powerful on the field. That's what they need to be doing. What they're doing takes courage in general. Like Marta has, you know, uh, even for her to just play soccer in a town where she grew up, where there were no girls playing, you know, she's a warrior, right? And if she now has the courage to go out on a, you know, international stage and wear red lipstick, like that, to me, that shows her even deeper courage. So, and the celebrations, you know, I, I see what people are saying about Thailand with the, especially that game, um, with the 13-0 game. But from my perspective, honestly, and I know people will disagree with me, those girls have been waiting their whole lives for that moment. And, you know, I just can't. I can't fault them for that. I just can't. I just feel like it's it's too important in a moment. It's too important for their families. All the pain and sacrifice and everything that they've had to do to get to that point. You know, if that's their joy, if they're expressing their joy, I have a hard time telling them to dampen that joy. It's the fucking World Cup. <laughs> you're going to score 13 goals. You're going to celebrate 13 goals because you scored 13 goals. And yes, the game broke my heart, but not because they celebrated. You know, and girls are supposed to play nice right? Guys are supposed to be arrogant and girls are supposed to play nice. Well, fuck that, right? I mean, I think that what broke my heart was that there shouldn't be a game in the World Cup where there's 13 nothing. That's sad and that's depressing. But that's not their fault. They scored 13 goals in a World Cup in front of the world, right? And it irritates me even more. Like, yes, like if it was my kid, I'd probably be like, all right, tone it down. Like, you know, but he's not my kid. And it irritates me that there's an absolutely different expectation of them than there are of guys. No one would say to like, Telly or you know any of those guys to be like oh he really is you know it's like seriously right how many haircuts has Neymar had on that field right Marta wears lipstick and all of a sudden the entire world wants to know why she's wearing lipstick you know so I think I know why she's wearing lipstick because I, I, I mean in my head or I hope it is it was right when she started her go equal campaign and she wore the no brand shoes and I think she was saying I'm a fucking girl and I'm playing and I'm gonna score and I'm the best and I'm gonna wear red lipstick and do it. And that's what I hope she was saying. I don't know, so in my head, that's what she was saying. Um, but yeah, I think the whole thing is because women are supposed to be nurturing and kind and we're supposed to kiss boo-boos and we're supposed to, you know, but it's the World Cup. Yeah, I don't know. I, I think the celebrations are fun. I mean, the Alex Morgan sipping tea was like one of my favorite celebrations or like, you know, Megan Rapinoe playing the air guitar. Like, though, I, you remember that stuff. And like, you know, like some of my favorite moments, like Usain Bolt with his, you know, yeah. I do that all the time. These like this guys will do like an entire choreographed dance after a goal. <laughs> no one, they all get together and they do like an entire choreographed dance and no one says anything. Yeah, no. 
craving the culture, right? We were just saying, right? We're craving more culture and more excitement and more creativity in the stadium. And now we're also judging them for it. Yeah, I don't know. One of my favorite players um, who's on the Netherlands, I'm forgetting her name now, but she has the pink hair and she wears lipstick too. Yeah, like, I, I love her too. just love for her being for being so bold. Yeah. Like, I just yeah. I just love her. But, you know, and I think sometimes we forget as we, you know, we're so deep in the soccer world that it's a very much a cultural thing. Like, I, I grew up running track and field and all the girls had, like, jewelry, hair, like, there's just socks, like, every, like, it was a fashion yeah. thing. It was like... You know, like, I'm a badass. Watch me beat you in this race. And, like, but also there's a thing where, like, you need to be good enough to be wearing what you're wearing right now. <laughs> but, it, yeah, but it, it's a... Yeah, but, it, it, you know, it's a cultural thing, you know? Like, it's, you know, soccer is one of those things where, you know, we've had to fight to, like, get the right to play. And so, you know, we had to, like, be like the men in certain regards and tone ourselves down. But, you know, I think there's a lot of a lot of room for expression and, and soccer, yeah. yeah. There definitely was a time when I was growing up that, that um, you know, if you wanted to be respected as a soccer player, you had to dress like a guy. You had to walk the walk. Yeah, you couldn't wear a bow in your hair. I mean, you couldn't, you know, do, I'm not that I would have done that anyway, and I'm not judging people who do, but, um, you know, if you wanted to be respected, uh, you, had to, you had to dress that part, you had to dress the part. Yeah, it's definitely not that way anymore, and, I don't know if it had been different. I'm wondering what I would have worn. Like, I know, I, like what? what um, I probably would have worn some really scary face paint. I was a I was a goalkeeper. That's not very. I mean, it could be feminine depending on how it's got done. But you know, like. But it shouldn't matter. No, like who? You know, it shouldn't matter at all. No, I I agree. But anyway, um, thank you too for talking with me. And uh, where can we? follow you find your stuff uh tell me everything so well the film will be out in uh, early 2020 you can go to warriors uh, warriorwomenoffootball.com and you can sort of it's, it's the website there's like it explains what the film is about what the social impact partners that we have you know that we're working with with the film is all about and we'll post stuff there we're going to put up the sizzle soon and warriorwomenoffootball.com amazing thank you anything else so uh, Kelly prefers Instagram, and she is uh, I am Kelly Nascimento on Instagram, and um, I have both Twitter and Instagram. My Twitter is Susie S O O Z I E, and I love new followers. And uh, my Instagram is Susie Petrocelli, uh, my full name. Awesome, thank you, ladies, so much. All right. Okay, so one quick update since this conversation occurred. In March 2020, the Brazilian Football Confederation announced that both the men's and the women's national teams will receive equal pay. How awesome is it to see the progress that has occurred since the last World Cup in 2019? I'm sure Kelly and Susie's film will have a lot to say about the state of the Brazilian women's soccer team and the time leading up to that moment, so I would continue to check out their work. Um, you can follow updates on that film on their blog at warriorwomenoffootball.com. If you liked what you heard today, enjoyed this conversation, you can find more podcasts like this and personal essays by me on hereforthelongball.com. Please like, share, comment, and donate. As always, I'm so grateful to be in community with you and can't wait to hang out again on the interwebs. Ciao.